Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast series proudly brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm Harpreet Kaur, editor at ISAS, and I'll be your host on this episode. My guest today is Ms. Anumita Roy Chaudhary, Executive Director, Research and Advocacy at the Centre for Science and Environment, CSE, in New Delhi. She has had a distinguished career in research, communication and advocacy on sustainable urbanization encompassing clean air action. She has helped to build the campaign on Right to Clean Air at the Centre that has contributed to several policy developments. Recently, Ms. Roy also participated at the COP27 Climate Summit, which took place in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, from 7 to 20th November 2022, which was basically attended by world leaders to find a solution for the damages caused by climate change. Climate change is developing into a terrifying truth that the world needs to address immediately. The COP, short for Conferences of the Parties, is a global summit on climate change held by the parties to the nations, to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and is the biggest and most important climate-related conference in the world. The focus for this year's summit are four goals, mitigation of climate change, adaptation to face the challenges of a changing climate, financing efforts to address climate change, and collaboration between member nations to achieve results in a balanced way. Ms. Roy, you attended the summit and we are hoping you can give us a sort of a post-analysis of this year's COP27. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Harpreet, for that very kind introduction. I was there. And we really need to understand the hits and misses of this much-hyped COP27. Inshallah, Sheikh, and imagine that tiny town with just about 17,000 people and where about 40,000 people from around the world had descended and gathered, right? So that was the energy in that uh, event. But the question is, uh, was this effective enough to push the decisions. And that's what I am coming back. You know, it's as always, the expectations are high, but the meaningful decisions to make this multilateral process of COP work effectively for the climate or for the global good, that remains inconclusive and indecisive on most counts. Yes. You know, that's what we really need to reflect on today. And what is worrying that that we still remain so indecisive when the IPCC science is constantly warning us about the need for early stabilization at 1.5 degree temperature. But the fact is that we have already committed to much higher level of warming in the coming decades. And the even bigger concern is that what the world collectively has committed, the countries around the world have collectively committed so far to mitigate climate change, that, that does not add up to, to meet the target. So it is against this backdrop that we truly need to understand that what did we achieve or not achieve in COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. 
So what really happened and what does this really mean for the developing country? So first, the silver line, the positive for the developing country. You know, after decades of efforts, the world has finally got the loss and damage fund. This fund, they have come in, the developed countries have committed to create this fund to pay for the loss and damage caused by climate change and extreme weather events in the most vulnerable countries, the countries who are facing the impact but have the least capability to deal with the damage and when they themselves are not responsible for climate change. Now, this is a significant development. Many are even calling it historic and it is a step forward. But, and the fact is that, as you know, that uh, the demand for this particular fund has come from the G77 group, and which actually represents about 80% of the world population. So this fund is expected to be operationalized by 2024. Now, this is a good step forward, but there are many, many questions about this fund. First, there is still no definition of who is the most vulnerable. In fact, in the process of defining that, we, we may become divisive. We may even end up dividing the developing world between those most vulnerable and the rest of the developing country, which the developed worlds are trying to do. And thus, the poor will be fighting the poor. India, for instance, was, has actually argued against creating these new categories of countries. So that's one big uncertainty. There is still no specific financial commitment from the developed world to make this fund. And where will this fund be housed? The G77 group, they want this to be a new finance facility. It should be a new additional fund, publicly funded, grant-based, and all the de all developing countries should qualify for accessing this fund. And the, they want, the G77 group, they want that this fund should be designed on the base of the historical responsibility and differentiated responsibility. And so, like other funds have been created under the UNFCC process, like the Climate Fund, GEF Fund, Adaptation Fund, even this should be under that. But the developed countries are still delaying and talking about process, more information. They want concepts like Green Shield, multilateral development bands to get in. They're looking at funding sources and actors outside the UNFCC process. So, and they want broader approach. So essentially what it means that that is they're looking at a, a funding arrangement that will be more outside the UNFCC process than within it. Now, those are the contentious point. There is also a huge disagreement on the whole concept of including the, uh, the, con the terms liability and compensation to operate the fund. Now, this is where we really want to make it very clear that when you're paying for loss and damage, then that means somebody is liable and responsible for the damage. And it is being said that because the developed countries who have very high historical emissions, they have a liability and responsibility towards contributing uh, contributing towards this fund. Now, if these principles are taken away, it weakens the mechanism. So that the pressure is actually now building up on the developing countries like India, China, to also contribute towards the future loss and damage fund. So therefore, as you can see, a lot of uncertainty regarding the fund and uh, which has a huge implication for the developing country, what would be the structure and the morality of the fund, 
made it aligned with what the G77 group is asking for, uh, they may, there may be pressure to reduce the number of countries who can receive or quantify for support from this grant. Even private sector fund is being looked at, which is actually quite unaccountable. So these are the issues that we really have to look at, even though the, uh, this is a good sign that we have been able to get the commitment to create the loss and damage fund. In addition to this, the other outcome that has implication for the developing countries is the whole focus on the national pledges to build uh, pressure for mitigation on developing countries. So there's a lot of talk about that how do we raise the level of ambition of the nationally determined commitments that all countries have made to mitigate climate change. And there's a considerable focus, therefore, on the mitigation work program. Now, there are concerns and something that we should know that for the next COP, that is a COP28, the world is now moving towards what we call is a global stock take. That will be the first formal assessment of the progress that the world has made under the Paris Agreement goal. Now, we have to ensure that that global stock take and a very loose concept of you know mitigation idea that the kind of it doesn't get blurred and so that we do not kind of look at only the mitigation work program as something non-prescriptive, non-punitive, and uh, uh, with, and which will not take us beyond the goals of the Paris very loosely worded program. Uh, so that versus the the very stringent global stock take that needs to happen. And a few other things that are a little worrying that in many of the texts now, these concepts, the terms, the equity, and the common but differentiated responsibility ideas have are being taken away. And uh, so this also has implications for the developing countries because this then eliminates the whole differentiation between the historical responsibility of the developed world and the, uh, and the developing countries who are uh, yet to grow and they need their ecological and carbon space to grow. So that's something that we really have to keep in mind. And the final point that I want to uh, highlight as uh, one of the outcomes is also the non-outcome on the goal of adaptation. So as you know that uh, the world is now working towards the global goal of adaptation to help the developing countries uh, to uh, uh, to be supported and to come up with their specific strategies for adaptation. And in fact, the COP27 has actually agreed to start a discussion on a framework for achieving global goal of adaptation. But as you can, uh, as you know that this has not really been worked out, even today, it is not very clear that what does adaptation really mean. In fact, the developing countries had made a plea earlier that the IPCC should develop indicators for global adaptation uh, uh, to help guide this process. But this has not been included in the final text. So keeping all this in mind, this is in nutshell the key outcomes and non-outcomes of the COP27 that have the implications for the developing countries. Sure. Thank you for that, uh, Ms. Roy. I understand that the finance part has become a big challenge. Um, did did the COP27 then address this concern? You know, climate 
finance. I mean, that has always remained the most contentious issue. So development on climate finance uh, so far has not been very encouraging. And as you're already aware, that in a way back in 2009, when for the first time climate finance uh, was created, which meant that the developed world would be contributing about 100 billion US dollars annually. So all of that had to be achieved by 2020. But the performance so far has been very poor. In fact, by 2020, only 83 billion could be called, was contributed. And what we are told and all the estimates that exist, that even out of that, the actual finance that was provided to the developing country was much less, maybe perhaps somewhere between 20 to uh, 24 billion in 2020. Now, with that legacy, um, what happened in COP27, therefore? This time, they have deliberated on a new climate finance target, which they call the new collective quantified goals on climate finance, which will replace this earlier USC 100 billion fund by 2025. Uh, but the negotiations uh, around this were, as usual, contentious between developed and developing countries. And, uh, and the whole question was about who is going to foot the bill. So clearly, uh, there has not been uh, absolute agreement on many of these uh, uh, issues. And what is important that as the discussions are now progressing on this, so we are uh, seeing that, uh, for instance, the European Union that tried to shift the focus to the terms like global efforts instead of contributions from the developed countries. Yes. You know, so uh, clearly uh, there is a whole effort to uh, kind of uh, dilute the whole idea of the specific commitments from the developed countries. In fact, developed countries have also opposed figures in trillions uh, as was proposed for the new goal. And uh, they have advocated for more private finance mobilization. And which we know there are many concerns around just hinging it onto the you know, private finance for climate mitigation, which so far has not performed that well. Now, they have also agreed that a new climate funding goal should build on lessons from the current climate finance target. And at this moment, they're asking to work out all the details on what constitutes a new finance goal. So the whole conversation, therefore, is more towards, you know, the reforming the multilateral development bank to increase their contribution and climate ambition. But to what extent such reforms are going to happen, where how the vulnerable countries uh, will benefit from this, all these remain to be seen. And the even bigger concern is that at this moment, there is no clarity on the kind of financial instruments that uh, can be used for delivering finance. The financial instruments in the sense of loan, grants, swaps, national climate fund, carbon markets, insurance, the whole range of it. So there, and there are particular concern around the fact that even the non-concessional loans are also being considered, and that can be a problem, as then repaying debts can reduce government spending on climate action and other services in developing countries. And the uh, so the whole issue around on how to bridge the funding gap, 
I mean, that still remains a big question. In fact, earlier when COP26 had asked, had talked about you know, doubling the adaptation finance, I mean, there is still no answer on that yet. So a lot of this is inconclusive. On the other hand, without sufficient financing, developing countries are increasingly looking at uh, the carbon market. In fact, there is a World Bank estimate that says that more than 66% of the countries are today planning to use carbon credit to meet their uh, NTC targets. So now these rules uh, for financing will really have to be thrashed out. There are several concerns because if you look at the elements and the different aspects of this financing, which are part of the rule book, and there are several, several articles that define those uh, financing strategy, like Article 6.2 that deals with the bilateral trade of emission reduction outcomes between two nations to help achieve climate targets. There is 6.4 that creates the global market for carbon credit. There is 6.8 that deals with non-market approaches. Now, all these are there, but the question is, like for instance, with respect to how the bilateral trade of emissions uh, reduction outcome can work, in that we know that uh, there is a problem of lack of transparency because uh, parties can hide their carbon credit transaction uh, as long as they justify it to uh, an independent reviewer and they provide explanation. But there are a lot of ifs and buts there. Then there is also the uh, concern around the global carbon market uh, credit from the perspective that it allows what they call is the emission avoidance, which means that you can buy credit to prevent, say, for instance, deforestation. So which means when countries or organizations get credit by preventing deforestation, such carbon removal strategies without a properly defined framework you know, uh, can have other implications in the developing countries. For instance, the, the, how the afforestation is going to happen, who has access to that uh, resource, how this is going to impact on the local livelihood of the indigenous people. There are, there are a lot of concerns, including human rights violations. So what they are saying that if the uh, afforestation uh, uh, projects, which are going to be used for carbon credit, are poorly implemented, then that can have a lot of adverse. I mean, it may, at one level, it may not lead to any specific mitigation. At another level, it can have a lot of adverse impact on livelihoods of local communities. On the other hand, uh, the voluntary carbon market is becoming very popular, which uh, are run by private organizations. And uh, but uh, the fact is that these are not covered under Paris Agreement. So there is really no clear accountability system there. But, uh, and we know that uh, the companies and corporations, if these things are not properly implemented, they can use these markets for a lot of greenwashing. In fact, COP27 has seen two carbon, uh, voluntary carbon markets uh, being launched. So one is the African Carbon Market Initiative for Adaptation and Mitigation. And then there is the Energy Transition Accelerator Fund, uh, which is expected to unlock a lot of uh, private finance for energy transition. So clearly, if the voluntary market uh, is uh, taking off, such markets need a lot of integrity and they need to really set the bar high. So this is how the, the whole carbon finance conversation is uh, emerging today 
there are a lot of gaps in the strategy and also the fact that even before we have really worked out all the rules of the trade, that the countries are already you know, getting into deals under Article 6.2, which is the bilateral trade. And so, uh, you know, without even when we have not worked out how to keep a central inventory of the transactions, and that is going to happen only in 2025. So clearly, it's a very volatile area. And we have to watch and inform and influence this process uh, very, very diligently. All right. Um, Mr. Roy, you spoke about the carbon market. If I could just ask you uh, uh, along the lines of solutions about electric vehicles and their usage being on a rise in India, thus the application of batteries being a boom is a discussion in circling climate change uh, and, and pretty much solutions as well. Would you be able to share with us more information on this concept of batteries and how compatible they are with sustainable development criteria and if it's feasible in assisting with climate change? So let us be very clear that uh, this whole shift from petro-economy to electro-economy, the power and the scale of change is going to be very big in the coming decades. I mean, uh, this is inevitable. This whole shift is inevitable. Now, let us understand why. If we have tracked both COP26 and COP27, just look at the way the different countries around the world have made their commitments. So, for instance, there is already a declaration of 100% transition to zero emission by 2030 to 40 time frame. And, uh, uh, you know, that has been, uh, this is a pledge that was signed by many countries in, uh, uh, in, in, in COP26. Uh, um, uh, it, we also have the ZEV Transition Council uh, uh, with representations from about 17 largest vehicle market. And that represents about 50% of the global car market. There is also ZEV Alliance launched, um, uh, you know, uh, where you have many countries today. In in addition to that, we know that about more than 20 countries uh, have actually committed to completely phase out their internal combustion engine. And, uh, and they want to move 100% to zero emission uh, uh, vehicles. Uh, the, um, even the global automotive companies are announcing commitments to produce about 100% you know, electric vehicles uh, by 2040. So if this is happening, there's such a big shift happening. From uh, this means that we are going to see a big transition from the oil-rich states to mineral-rich states. You know, the whole supply chain and what we call the new oil uh, is uh, going to change. And this is going to bring in a lot of sustainability concerns around that how are we going to do uh, sustainable mining to access battery material. And, uh, uh, you know, so those are the concerns that are going to come up that, uh, uh, because a new battery ecosystem will have to be created. And what will matter now is the battery production, raw material sourcing, battery assembly and management, and the whole range of that. Yeah, Battery raw material security and access to mined material uh, will become big. In fact, if you look globally today, the automobile companies who have now high ambition for production of electric vehicles they are beginning to tie up with the mining agencies to directly source and they are under pressure to uh, kind of do a whole 
life cycle assessment for uh, to prove their sustainability. So the other aspect of this is that this is certainly going to make the economy more vulnerable to geopolitical complexities and global supply chain material minerals for battery technology are all going to be in a flux but we need to look at it because you need to secure supply chain for cobalt lithium nickel graphite i mean whole you know everything you know the whole new battery chemistry um, uh, is now going to set the terms of the trade but um, uh, and uh, so this also means that we are going to see a lot of push towards localizing battery production and that's where the most countries are moving in that direction but let's also keep in mind that for that to happen now and if we know that this change is inevitable the country especially in asia south asia they will have to work with very clear targets and mandate like today for instance in india we know that the potential for electrification by 2030 is about 70 percent but the actual market penetration so far is less than one percent now how do you therefore build for scale which will require the oem the, the, the pricing fiscal non-fiscal support model availability charging infrastructure whole ecosystem has to be put in place but more important is that to be able to enable this transition countries like india and several others are looking at localization of the production and local manufacturing will become absolute necessity so that we are able to uh, access our own raw material evolve our own electrochemistry uh, we have our own strategy for end of life treatment of cells modules and battery packs but all of that will require committed market because such a transition is possible when you have created demand in the market now for that you need because at this moment there is a high uncertainty about the volumes evolving battery chemistry there are large risk uh, today uh, associated with the roadmap but the, the financing uh, of the uh, strategy is still very uncertain so the way to transform the market and to move in that direction would be that the internal regulatory regime has to now move towards zero emission mandate we several countries today including india have begun to adopt incentive based strategies these are already in place but that is not enough a zero emission vehicle mandate will be required uh, for supply side mandate so that the automobile companies commit to produce a certain percentage of their production as evs because that is needed for a robust supply for larger model availability to stimulate demand address skewed costs all of that so a mandate based strategy will provide certainty it will also encourage investors provide flexibility to the industry to develop plans to achieve target it is needed for long-term vis policy visibility that how are we going to move forward so the short answer to that the question is that zero emission transition is going to be very important part uh, of the low carbon growth and uh, while we have to eliminate the low emission the the uh, the tailpipe emission from vehicles where they are flying we also have to ensure that the electricity that these vehicles are going to source to run are also fully decarbonized and that is going to be the win-win strategy and this strategy therefore needs to be supported with good uh, fiscal strategy and a regulatory mandate 
let's look at the region. South Asia has been joggled around in a climatic vicissitude and the effects have caused drastic changes in lifestyle, especially livelihood, and now is, uh, is now a matter of life and death. How can the region, I'm talking about South Asia, unite to fight against climate change or perhaps form partnerships to improve these effects, Ms. Roy? So it's very clear from everything that we have uh, seen and read so far that how severely impacted this region is from climate change. The, it is battered year after year. And it is amongst one of the most vulnerable regions, especially I'm talking about the whole South Asia region. And uh, uh, in fact, very recently, when we did our own analysis of how many extreme weather events have actually occurred uh, in India, for instance, till September this year, I mean, we were quite stunned to see that at least one extreme weather event has happened in some part of India every day. Now, that, is, that mirrors what is happening in the larger South Asia. This means, therefore, that mitigation of climate change has to be a development agenda. You know, it is not some a fringe issue. Uh, and, and that's something that we have to really look at uh, uh, to develop a regional strategy, uh, which is comprehensive and which is based on very clear assessment of the impacts of climate change which seeks to understand that what are the future trends, how it's going to get worse, how the, what is going to be the magnitude of that impact, and understand the quantitative and qualitative information around it. And this means that we first require a coordinated information sharing system that can help to provide knowledge support uh, 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 to the governments in the region on uh, to define and refine their strategy for mitigation and adaptation. So this regional framework is needed and this has to be based on the whole framework of cooperation. In fact, already in this region, we do have several regional platforms like the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, like SALT, etc. Now, how can we leverage these existing regional platforms to work for climate change? So in fact, what we know that about, I think, um, in 2018, SARC had actually adopted uh, a three-year action plan on climate change. So can we make these efforts uh, more meaningful, more effective, uh, and, uh, and mainstream it? So, uh, so that's, that's one key area of intervention that is going to be very, very important. And the, and the bigger issue that we all need to comprehend for the region is that while Climate change is a very serious risk, but mitigation and adaptation strategy uh, can also offer an enormous opportunity to this region. In fact, uh, a recent uh, estimate, uh, I recall, that was done by the IFC uh, World Bank, uh, they, they have estimated that the investment potential of the, you know, by these, the five countries in South Asia between 2018 and 2030 can run into more than $3.4 trillion, right? Because they will all be investing in renewable energy, green building, transportation, urban water, agriculture, municipal solid waste for mitigation. And this enormous spending that is going to happen, uh, that can actually change the face of the economy. This is an 
this is an important opportunity not only to build climate resilience, but this can unlock uh, enormous investment for sustainable development and low carbon growth. So we need to internalize these policies in our development agenda in the region, build regional cooperation uh, uh, to deepen the understanding, to refine the strategies, to offset the vulnerability of the climate impact. And it is even more important to understand that now in the growing economy, uh, particularly when we see this kind of climate impact happening, the businesses themselves are very adversely impacted because of the climate impacts and extreme weather events. The disruption in the supply chain, business disruption, they add to the enormous cost that the business has to incur. So in fact, globally, we are saying that now several businesses are already adopting voluntary targets for themselves. So we have to therefore focus on uh, not only the crisis, but also the advantage of rebuilding the economy. And we have to understand that we have uh, that mainstreaming these indicators during the early phases of development can help us to live from and avoid a lot of the emissions uh, and uh, that will commit ourselves to higher war, uh, you know, warming. So that's the opportunity that we really need to look at. We need to build new industry based on clean energy and clean technology. We need to build transportation system, leveraging the baseline, the good baseline that we already have, which means that the majority in the South Asian region are still walking, cycling, and using public transport. So we have an advantage to modernize that paradigm and avoid the future emissions. So clearly the messages that turn the risk into opportunity. Thank you, Ms. Roy, on um, the overview of the COP27. If I could just round off the episode with a question, a more grassroots level question. Um, what can you and I do to make a difference to climate change? Absolutely. You know, I mean, as long as we are going to keep the whole idea of climate change abstract and remote from what we do, you know, we will not be able to uh, build awareness and provide support to the hard decisions. So that means that we have to internalize a lot of the, the lifestyle changes that is required today uh, to be able to push ourselves towards low carbon growth path. Because a lot of the solutions that we are talking about today, whether it is about clean energy, mobility transition, circular economy, that are central to the solution to climate change, actually begins with us as, a, as individuals. So wherever we are, the fundamentals that we need to, are the alterations that we need to make in our lifestyle, one, that every time we step out of the house, can we avoid the car trip? Can we walk? Can we cycle? Can we uh, uh, reduce our uh, need for commuting? Can we hop onto a bus or a subway? And so those personal decisions and multitude of decisions can help to decarbonize our um, uh, whole mobility strategy. Second, we need to understand that we have to promote circularity, that today our uh, uh, consumptive lifestyle, which is generating enormous waste, and uh, 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 that will have to be minimized. But for that, we need responsible consumption. 
And uh, so that means that we have to reuse um, and uh, recycle uh, whatever we can. Uh, we have to ensure that it, what what is possible at our level, we will do. But we also have to put pressure on the municipalities to uh, ensure that there is 100% segregation of the waste, uh, collection of the waste, and that we are able to recycle the waste to bring it back to um, uh, as a resource. And the other part is that we have to ensure that we are reducing our energy consumption. We have to get not more aware and we have to make it a lot more transparent for ourselves to see how much of electricity we are consuming and wasting. That can we go for energy efficient appliances? Can we uh, ensure that we are not keeping our lights on when we don't uh, need them? Uh, can we uh, uh, design our houses more with architectural design to improve the thermal comfort and reduce the need for using air conditioners? You know, there is multitude of such decisions that are needed today uh, to be able to power that change. But the final point is that yes, a lot we can do at our own individual level with individual decision, but it is equally important to stand collectively and to give signals and the messages to our own governments that hard decisions are important and we stand behind the hard and the difficult decisions that are needed today to build the infrastructure, the right systems, so that our individual decisions can also be enabled and we can truly make the lifestyle changes. So supporting the hard policy and changing the politics around the hard decisions will be the most critical role that we can play as individuals and citizens. Thank you, Ms. Roy, for the reminder, and thank you for joining us today on South Asia Chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to our listeners, and from all of us at ISA's Seasons Greetings, and we wish you a happy and healthy New Year. You are listening to South Asia Chat. To learn more about our work, please visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also get updates from our social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter.